It's ten times the terror. Hello there. Hi, and welcome to 10 Times the Terror. My name is Ralph. And I'm Paul. And I am very happy to welcome as our guest today, film historian and researcher, Tom Weaver. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. Tom, I'm just amazed if I can start for a moment at all you've done. I mean, I, I went through you know some of these things here. How much you've done in horror and sci-fi. You've done so many books on Amazon. It's just fascinating to look at this and hundreds of interviews. Paul and I, you know, we, we share a mutual love for all of this because uh, when we were little kids, I can remember going to the Capitol Theater in Passaic every Saturday. It was like a religion. And uh, every time I got scared, I'd tell myself, I'm never coming back. When I saw <laughs> Fiend Without a Face, I said, I am never coming back to these movies until I saw the next coming attraction. And sure enough, I was back there again. Where did your fascination with this all begin? Well, I didn't stand a chance. I was born in 58, which means I was a little kid in 63, <laughs> 4, 5. The movie theaters were full of monster movies. When TV was full of monster stuff like Outer Limits and Twilight Zone and even the monsters in the Addams Family, when the monster magazines were all over the magazine racks, when oh, TV yeah. was mm -hmm. showing the old movies, um, what chance did I have? Right. Re remember those days, Tom, when you didn't have a VCR or a DVD? <laughs> we would stay up till two in the morning to watch the Late Show and Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms coming on. Uh, I I had an alarm clock. I didn't stay up. I had an alarm <laughs> clock. But you had to you had to make sure to turn it off quick, and you had to make sure to keep the TV low. Or uh, oh yeah, would come in and tell you to go the go the hell back to bed. Yeah, that, I I went through all of that. Yeah, I I learned I'd go to bed early, set the alarm. You know, right, get up and then sneak downstairs. And we had a TV in the basement, right down in the basement where I could watch uh, one, of the, one of the universal horrors or whatever else, you know, uh, that yep. was on, you know, the shock theater. Yeah. So, um, listen, I, I, we talked a little bit before. Tom, I'm throwing out some ideas um, and uh, kind of uh, focus on the universal horrors. Uh, you know, and you have a, a part of a major book that, that dealt with all of those. Um, do you have a favorite? Among the universal horrors, of course, my favorite would be from the Golden Age. And I do think it's Frankenstein, although every time I watch The Invisible Man, I, I tell myself, no, it's The Invisible Man. But then the experience fades away and it becomes Frankenstein again until I watch The Invisible Man. Again. So That's I, the one with Claude Rains, right? Yeah, correct. So it's a dead heat between those two. And then I'll give you, I'll give you an, an offbeat one. Um, once we get to the second wave of universal horrors in the 40s, my favorite might be Man-Made Monster because I don't think there's a frame wasted in that movie. Mm, it, interesting. I, 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 find it, I find it a lot of fun from, from bus crash at the beginning to, um, to Dan's death at the end. Just the fastest 59 minutes in universal horrordom. Now, wasn't that originally to be a Karloff and Lugosi film? When uh, when the script was originally written in the mid '30s, yes, they they were talking about Karloff and/or Lugosi, and um, and then of course horror went out of went out of vogue because too many people were complaining, and foreign countries were starting to ban them, and it, they got to be more trouble than they were worth. But when horror came back in '39, uh, they dusted off that script and. 
used it as a, um, uh, a launching pad for their new horror star, Lon Chaney Jr. Sure. Okay. And that had Lionel Atwood in it, right? As the he was the mad scientist. Absolutely, and he is a joy when he's, he's gives one of his best performances, in my opinion. And even when he's not talking, he's making faces, reacting to everything oh, else. Yeah. Every, everybody else is saying in the movie. And if you watch, if you watch him, you're in. Never take your eyes off of him, and you're in for a great time. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, one of my personal favorites with him was the the Hound of the Baskervilles, and his great line, Mister Holmes. They were the footprints of a gigantic hound. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With those crazy glasses that made his yeah, eyes. Yeah, right, right, right. The, uh, like bottle cap. I'd like to talk a little bit about Frankenstein, if we could. Um, you bet. I, you know, as I said, I, I, as far as I know, Frankenstein is the only novel to have been filmed in every decade of the 20th century. If that's the case, why do you think that is? Um, well, I thought about that comment of yours some more, and I think... Jekyll and Hyde might, well, Jekyll and Hyde is very, very short, but I'll bet Jekyll and Hyde came up uh, 10 times also throughout the uh, 20th century. But okay. Frankenstein, Frankenstein asks, Frankenstein, the Karloff movie is obviously not much like the novel at all. Right. It uh, doesn't run, go all around over the world mm-hmm. and up to the North yeah. Pole and, and everything else at the very small scale. It's got, it's got a fascinating central character, Frankenstein, the doctor. The monster is... A really pathetic and sympathetic character because he's more sinned against than sinners. And a sinner, and the world yeah. makes a monster. And um, it's just, just, just a great. <laughs> pardon the pun. It's a great universal storyline um, that asks, poses a lot of interesting questions and great opportunities for adventure and horror. Yeah. Now, there are some loose ends, I find, in it as much as... Actually, if I had to pick my favorite universal uh, horror film, it would probably be Bride of Frankenstein. Uh-huh. It's almost a film you can't categorize. I don't know what you could say. She hates me. Things. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, like, for example, in a much-parodied um, moment where uh, Fritz comes back with the... Uh, the criminal brain, you know, and and it has broken <laughs> yeah. the glass of the normal brain. That never really filters into the rest of the story. I mean, it it, it goes nowhere because um, uh, the only violence the monster does is against people who are trying to hurt him or kill him. Mm-hmm. And when he's with a little girl, it's like they're two little children playing together. It's like you know, um, uh, two of my grandkids, you know, playing together, and they'll fight too. So yeah. I, it 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 it's. They bring this whole thing up about it, and at one point, you know, Dr. Waldman makes that comment, and Frankenstein's response is, well, it's just a piece of dead tissue or something like that. So it, it's, I, I don't, to me, it's, it's, it's something that just hangs out there and never really plays a role in the, in the rest of the story. Yeah, and, um, and uh, Colin Clive kind of makes a face and, 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 and looks like he's making excuses when he says uh, it's only a piece of dead tissue, when he realized he's gotten an abnormal criminal brain. But what I don't understand is at the beginning of the movie, he was ready to use the brain of the hanged man, a criminal. Why, why, why put this all on Fritz for stealing a criminal brain when you, Henry Frankenstein, were more than happy to steal the hanged man's criminal brain? And if you're looking for stuff that doesn't make sense in Frankenstein, my favorite is... Uh, Henry goes off to get married and leaves Dr. Waltman to uh, dissect the monster. The monster wakes up, gets away, and he goes to Henry's wedding. Yeah, right. <laughs> what, 
Did, did he read about it in the paper? Did he read the social <laughs> column? Uh, how, how does he know Henry's getting married and where to go and which is the wife? And so he, suddenly he's very, he's very, he's very clued in all of a sudden. And, and yeah, can't but it that, cannot have happened. As you know, that that whole sequence of the monster coming in on May Clark, that's right out of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a and, lot in it's. Great so I think fun. part of it is is. You know, it's an homage to the, you know, the uh, the German tr- tradition that that's all that expressionism and so forth. And then uh, when she's draped over the bed, it's like that that painting, uh, nightmare. Mm-hmm. And that isn't that like it's like a eighteenth, um, nineteenth century painting, the nightmare. Where you know, uh, which is which is this woman just in white draped over a bed, and there's like a little demon figure there uh, with her. Mm-hmm. The other, the other thing is that I, I think it's a case of two where the, the and I find this in true in a number of the Universal films that the, you know, the script starts off in one direction and then just flips over to another direction, mm-hmm. and because the films are so well made and, and you realize that when you look at other films of the period, they don't hold up as well uh, with some notable exceptions like Paramount's Island of Lost Souls and things like that, but. Um, the other thing is that that Henry Frankenstein is not really a sympathetic character, um, and that that early on you have that scene with um, uh, Victor and Elizabeth are meeting with Doctor Voldman, and uh, you know he's talking about how Frankenstein first of all wanted to do his own kind of research and not want to be part of the university, which is a questionable kind of thing to start with, but then that um, he wanted these specimens, and he wasn't to be too concerned about where they came from. And they had to be human specimens. So that has to come across as, um, and I think then the whole rest of the, of the film is moving us toward the idea uh, that uh, Elizabeth's going to end up with Victor and that Frankenstein you know, dies when he's thrown off of the, uh, the burning windmill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to get another piece in there, you know, this is from our religious perspective, that they never should have been taken out because I think it's very revealing is that the famous line, um, you know, in the name of God. Now I know what it's like to be God. I think I have that uh, right here. I wanted our audience to hear that. It's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. There you go. Now I know what it feels like to be God. Well, you know, it's good to have a self-esteem image that's positive, but I think he's pushing it a little... A yeah. little too far here. But they, so the, the whole trajectory of the film, I find, though, you know, from right beginning on, is that uh, Henry is a rebel. You know, he's <clears throat> he is trying to be like God. Uh, he's going to be self-destructive. He is uh, responsible for, uh, you know, the, the, the treatment of, of the monster. The monster is like an abused child. And that his death is um, is to be expected. It, it, it's it. It holds together, you know, morally and thematically, and obviously Victor is there set up to, and he makes that line to Victor when he's going out to search for the monster. He says, if anything happens to me, I want you to take care of Elizabeth. Well, how more obvious could that be? And and that, obviously, that tacked on ending is um, is a total downbeat, because the, the last shot of the, the mill, the long shot with just smoldering ashes, is uh, is very impressive. Yeah, Frankenstein is even more unsympathetic, in, in as far as I'm concerned, he's even more unsympathetic in the novel because you 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 called the movie Frankenstein a rebel a minute ago. In the novel, he's a rebel without a backbone, 
because um, he, he rents a room in, in, in like a lodging house or something, and that's where he creates the monster and he brings it to life. And as it's as the as this thing is waking up, this eight foot tall, you know, gigantic, powerful thing, he gets so creeped out and so scared, he just yeah, he runs just runs. Away. <laughs> he just runs and never comes back. The, the, the other people in the house can can figure it out. The, you know, this this man that I created, you know, he's on his own. I'm out of here. This, this I'm. He just washes his hands of the whole thing and runs. And that that was that is the most cowardly, despicable <laughs> thing I've ever I've read, ever read in a novel to create another <laughs> human being and to just run, never to come back. If I could ask you, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite uh, short stories that that constantly uh, it's a terrifying novel is uh, the Island of Doctor Moreau by Wells. And mm-hmm. uh, do you think uh, Wells, when he wrote that? was inspired by Frankenstein, but took a different, you know, take on it with the vivisection and so forth? Mm, that's an interesting question, and I'd have to... Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder if he was ever... I wonder if he ever mentioned Frank in the novel Frankenstein in any of his interviews. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask this. Uh, after Frankenstein, after Shelley writes Frankenstein, what's the next, as far as we know, what is the next novel that comes out that's a parody of that? Ah, uh, you you should have um, you should have called the novel historian instead of a film historian. Okay, I'm yeah. afraid I can't answer that one. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, and also, just, before before we get away from yeah. Island of Lost Souls, that's another that's another movie that improves on the novel. I, I think a, a lot of classic novels were improved by the movies. In in Island of Doctor Moreau, Doctor Moreau gets killed in the middle of the story. Oh yeah, and um, and I think um, I think the movie handled handled it much more much better dramatically. Charles Lawton is is, is amazing in that, you know. Right? Oh, he's the whole he's the whole show, absolutely. Yeah, he's like at will. He's like at will in uh, Man Made Monster. He's just you know, don't take your eyes off him. He's always yeah. he's always being entertaining. Paul, wasn't one of the films that you showed at the Halloween's uh, Halloween night at the church years ago? One of our favorite comedy films of this, of course, is. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I mean, uh, sure. that, that probably was their best film in, in my mind. And Costello didn't want to make it. He thought it was a horrible script, and I think he had to kind of be bribed into making it. And it, it just shows that some people uh, yeah. just just don't have a just don't have a clue about their own uh, livelihoods. It, it, yeah. it really well, wasn't one of their most successful movies, too. I think it was a big box office hit. It, well, I'm 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 sure. It, I'm sure things like Buck Privates, Buck Privates like set the Hollywood, yeah. set the box office on fire when they were just starting. And I think um, I'd be surprised yeah. if Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was as successful as that. But yes, it was on the list of top grocers of that year. And uh, mm. boy, for TV ratings, when I was a kid, they never showed that movie where every kid in school wasn't talking about it on Monday morning, no matter how many times they showed the movie. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, I want to go back a little bit, you know, here, uh, we're coming at this, you know, we want to include a kind of a spiritual perspective. One of the debates in, in biblical studies uh, is what is the real, the nature of the, the sin, the so-called fall that separates Adam and Eve from God? And obviously it's eating the forbidden fruit. It's not an apple. It's some kind of forbidden fruit. Um but uh, there is a school of thought that say it, it's it, you know, not just the forbidden fruit is something that's desirable and forbidden, but that it's that the, the serpent tempts Eve and then Adam with the idea that uh, you will be like God. 
And right. that's why that line is so important in Frank and, and the religious people should never have objected to that because, yeah, that's making a, a very sound biblical point, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. God is God and we are not, you know, and yeah. and, the, the, and I think that's the warning. And probably you got to think in terms of the fact this is only um, 15 years or so after the end of World War One, where you had all of this technology and advanced scientific stuff, and it was all for destruction. Once, once they restored that line, I, I never quite figured yeah. out why, why it was objected to. In the it, to me, that that seals Henry Frankenstein's fate. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, now, Tom, do you think that 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 was that the original uh, intent of the film to end with Frankenstein's death and just the smoldering um, uh, windmill, or uh, yeah, did they yeah. really want to end it on a kind of that silly happy note? Yeah, because uh, the 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 added scene that shows you that Henry is still alive was added in post production. The picture was wrapped and done, and then they went back and um, and shot and wrote and shot that scene. And that's why Colin Clive isn't in it. Apparently, he was you know moved on to some other project or went back to England or whatever he did, and they couldn't get him, so they had to film it. They had to write it and then film it with Henry in the in the far distance so that you wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't Colin Clive. And funnily enough, it turned out to be it was just an extra that they used. He just, you know, just some guy lying in a bed. It didn't have to be anybody, and it wasn't anybody. It was just a complete nobody that they probably paid $10. But he, he turned out <laughs> to be a cowboy star later. The, he turned out to be an actor named Robert Livingston, who starred oh, yeah. in um, in dozens and dozens of westerns and even starred in a horror film. Valley of the Zombies. He is. Oh, gee, um, yeah. He is. He is Henry Frankenstein at the end of Frankenstein. Now, uh, did did they add that under pressure from initial release, or why why did they even put that in? Oh, if you had warned me you were going to ask that, I would have tried to read that before, <laughs> before this call. It seems. I'm sorry. My memory <laughs> is yes, they just realized that the ending was too downbeat, or maybe maybe from showing it at a preview, they got the idea that it was too downbeat, and uh, yeah. And suddenly we had Robert Livingston in uh, in bed with some woman, ex- yeah. some woman extra also. The, the the Edward von Sloan thing at the beginning, warning you know that, that this is going to be a, a disturbing film, so on and so forth, uh, yeah. which I guess it very much was in 1931. You know, some people try to try to take a different uh, stand on Frankenstein and his motives and his character. Uh, you know, some some believe that he's searching for transcendence, that he's trying to find the key between or a bridge between life and death. And he's actually his motive is not to be God, but his, his motive is to somehow bring immortality through this being and then show that the death can be overruled. You think that's possible, Paul? Yeah, isn't part of the motivation his mother's death in in the novel that he he's going to try to find the secret of eternal life? Well, as you know, in the uh, in this, in in the book, in Shelley's book, you know, Shelley herself was an agnostic, and uh, I think what she's trying to show in some ways here is that you can create a human being with a blank slate. In other words, you know, this idea of Adam's sin, or you know, someone who's perfectly starting out fresh, the first you, like almost like a second Adam, really. Uh, but you know, ultimately, uh, bringing anything into this world, at least from my experience, is looking for trouble. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the movie, Blaine, Dr. Walden, why he did what he did. And it kind of comes down, well, I mean, he uses a lot of, of fancy fancy words and talks about wondering what eternity is. But it really sounds to me just like the movie gives the impression, it takes a shortcut and just gives the impression he's doing it all out of scientific curiosity. Yeah. 
So, mm-hmm. Tom, is, 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 is the creature from the Black Lagoon the next logical step for Universal to move out of the old-school horror film? I would say so, yeah. I mean, it's science fiction in that, um, you know, the monster is a prehistoric creature, so it's usually labeled as science fiction, but I certainly consider him the last of the great Universal monsters. And um, also, one interesting thing I finally noticed after a lifetime of watching Creature from the Black Lagoon and the sequels every time they came on TV. Finally, I had an opportunity to interview the producer of the move, of all those three movies, William Allen. And in preparing to do that, you know, I, knew, I know the movies by heart, but still, when I'm getting ready to interview somebody, I either watch the movies I'm going to ask them about, rewatch, I should say, and, so, and fairly often in fast forward, because, you know, I know them so well, I'm just skimming through to remind myself of all the different story points and all. For the first time ever, I watched Creature from the Black Lagoon and Revenge of the Creature back-to-back. And, you know, this expedition um, goes, you know, they they have an indication that some prehistoric something might have once lived in a particular area. And they go there, and they find a monster, and he kidnaps the girl. And they capture him. I'm giving the plot of the first two movies. And they capture him, and they bring him back to civilization, and they put him in chains, and they put him on exhibit, and he escapes, and he steals the girl, and the police... And the, everybody's after him. And I realized, wait a second, this is King Kong. Oh, sure. <laughs> King Kong, oh, sure. King Kong <laughs> spl- split into two movies. I said that to the producer, and he busted out laughing. He says, of course it was. That was my whole idea. And I don't think anybody had ever compared the creature to King Kong before, but that's what the creature is. King the, Kong split the, into two movies. The DVD, I showed Paul the DVD in, in the uh, 3D. That is uh-huh. an amazing uh, DVD. Yeah. They, oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was the first movie with underwater 3D also. They oh. made a, a big deal out of that in 1954 when it came out. But Julie Adams' legs, I think that, that took a, you know, it's a close call between what took center stage on the screen, her legs or the creature. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Funnily, funnily enough, um, everybody is dead from oh, that movie yeah. except except the most famous scene in the movie where the creature is swimming underwater and Julie and the girl oh, yeah. is swimming on top and he's, he's parallel touching her, her and, heel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're both still alive. Those are stunt people. Oh, okay. now, the two people in, in, in 2021 decades after the movie was made and decades after all of the cast died, those two people in the best scene are still alive. That's amazing. You know, as, as I've been trying to bring on people, uh, sometimes you forget, you know, like I was looking into this island earth to try to get someone. And uh, the closest I could find was to uh, the lead character's daughter living out in California somewhere. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to oh, try absolutely. to, you know, to get these people. And suddenly you say, what, this person died in 1991. I'm, I thought they were still around. And uh, we <laughs> yeah. have to grab them while we can, you know. In the, in the early years of me interviewing, I started doing interviews in the mm, 80. Well, I, I, I used to call up Hollywood people just to introduce myself and talk to them if I was a fan. I didn't record it. I didn't have any intention of putting it into, into magazines. But those were my first interactions with Hollywood people. And then I started doing interviews around 82 or 83, somewhere in there. And um, back in those days, there was no internet movie database. There was no nothing. And I would spend days trying to find somebody 
you know, calling directory assistance here and there and blah, 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 <laughs> and calling the different yes. guilds, only to find out at the end of like three or four days, like he died in 1949. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's I, true. It's true. Oh, I just, boy. I just, I just spent several days looking for someone whose bones have turned to dust. The Internet certainly has made finding those people a lot easier once it came along. You know, we, we were, I was in touch last week with one of my uh, choice people, Earl Holloman. God bless uh -huh. him. 91 years old. Uh, Earl, as you know, has the distinction of being uh, the only survivor of the cast from Forbidden Planet. And I said to him, Earl, it's just you and the robot now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he also did the, uh, as you know, he also did the pilot for the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and he's, but, he's also in visit to a small planet with uh, Jerry Lewis. If oh I, my gosh! If I ever got to talk to Earl Holloman, I think I think that might be the movie I talked to him about because I, I I have this fetish for liking for finding people and talking to them about the credit nobody else asks them about uh -huh. because mm -hmm. then you get never that, that's that's one way to get never published stories out of out of these people. Yeah. Who's your favorite person that you've interviewed? Oh, there've been some. The producer of the. Uh, of the three creature movies and and this island earth and it came from outer space william allen he was certainly one of my favorites because oh he was at the top of my list for years and when i finally right. found him and he was he was bend over backwards nice and happy to talk anytime and if he started calling me when he'd think of things he wanted you know other stories he wanted yeah. to tell um I, I think he would be at or near the top of the list absolutely so to get someone like a lucas or a spielberg is that almost an impossibility nowadays with the, the demands oh, on these no, people I've never, I've never tried them I, I try to i try very hard to stick to people who've never been interviewed um so i've, I've never mm. talked to any of them also also to be honest my interest in movies um after after movies of the 60s it kind of dwindles a little and after movies of the 70s it kind of dwindles a lot and we're at the point now where i haven't yeah. been to them I've, I've, I've probably gone to the movies to see a new movie maybe right. 10 times in, in the last 20 years. And, mm -hmm. to, and after those times, I got dragged. You know, I was with a group yeah. that suddenly wanted to go to the movies. <laughs> Let Whenever me ask anybody you... asks me a question about new movies, I say, wait, 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 wait. Ask me about black and white movies. If you want to know about new movies, yeah. there's not a person <laughs> on earth worse than me to ask. <laughs> Let me ask another question here, Tom. We're talking about the Universal Classics. It's all black and white. and um, what what would you say is the you know they they keep being reissued you know in different packages um, you know uh, Blu-ray and four uh, K and and all of this and this is a whole video history. Why do you think these films have such a continuing fascination when some of them are like eighty ninety years old? They're still being on the market and apparently they must still be selling. Yeah, um, I think I think my answer now that you've really made me think about it, I think my answer is going to be two prong. Number one, we all grew we grew up being told that these were the best horror films of all time, and no, nobody, not too many people have ever argued with that. And so when you're told that something is the best of all time, you just assume that it is, and um, and assume that the right. qualities in it. Are what make it the best. You're, you're, you're sort of you're sort of taught to believe that they're the best of all time, and that movies like these are among the best of all time, and you ex you happily accept that. I mean, you know, but you know, we call great symphony, you know, great Mozart and Beethoven music from hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the best music of all of all of, of of its time. You know, like that's the only that's the only like point oh 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 one percent of the music of that time that we've heard. 
Why are we saying it's the best when we haven't heard any of the other um, yeah. mm. music from, from those centuries? So um, there's a little bit of that, and also there's a little bit of horror film fans are crazy. We've all become kind of um, <laughs> obsessive, compulsive, and um, and if they come out with a version that's that's you know sharper than you've ever seen it before or improved sound or whatever, I'm afraid we've all been um, conditioned that we're we're nutty enough about this stuff that we'll take we'll we'll bite at the apple every time. Let me let me just turn for a quick moment to another uh, favorite of mine. We're thinking about the Universal Horrors. There's uh, you know one of the most successful things that Universal actually had in the 40s, as you would know, is the Sherlock Holmes series. And I know that, you know, they get put in different categories, not the least of which is some uh, anti-Nazi propaganda in the earlier ones they do. And, and I, I, I love all of those films. And, and I, I even love Donald Jerusalem's Watson, the way he does it. But it seems that, that there's three films in the middle of that series that really cross over the line from this mystery and should be considered as, as part of the horror tradition of Universal. And those would be um, The Scarlet Claw, The Spider-Woman. And the Pearl of Death. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I would also I would add um, I would add the House of Fear to that list. And what Universal did, which is which is interesting to me, is when they started the Holmes series. Obviously, as you just said, um, suddenly Holmes wasn't from you know the turn of the century anymore. Suddenly he was living in the forties, and World War Two was going on. They made him a contemporary character. Well, at some point, I think they realized they might have made a mistake. Because what they did and what they consciously did and what they admitted they did, like every, after a while, every other picture, it was still set in the 40s. Obviously, we knew he was a contemporary character, but like every other picture had no cars in it, had no modern anything in it. So mm. that if you could tell yourself that it took place in 1900 and there'd be nothing in the movie to, um, to, uh, to, to, to make you yeah. change your mind. And Scarlet Claw, I think, um, that to me... Scarlet Claw and Pearl of Death are as good as are as good or better than most of the Universal horrors of the forties. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, uh, Tom, we can't let you go without mentioning uh, another another area uh, that Paul and I uh, are constantly fascinated with, and of course that's uh, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. That was mm -hmm. a kid's for guys like us. That was a kid's dream uh, yeah. when that came out. And what I loved about the show, in some ways, was that it had that fantasy aspect and yet it can still be terrifying i think that show with telly savalas uh my yeah. name is talking oh Tina. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i, I don't mean, like you how do you make a doll scary how do you make a doll scary that's not an easy thing to do and he does he right. pulls it off beautifully and and even a crazy story like a monster on a on, a, on an airliner's wing um, yeah, oh, yeah right. they, they, they made these things absolutely terrifying and i was one of the kids back then who who, uh, who was prepared to watch through his fingers every time Twilight Zone came on. Wasn't that great? Yeah. yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. I, I want to yeah. thank you guys. All my books are available on Amazon.com. I've written for McFarland and Bear Manor. And everybody, everybody in the publishing world has been incredibly nice to me and made it tremendous fun. I've written about 40 books so far, and fingers crossed I've got another 40 in me. Okay, Tom. God bless you, brother. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to... It's ten times the terror. The podcast. You are impossible. Robert, do your well intentions are totally wrong. Thank you for listening to Ten Times the Terror. This podcast would not be possible without listeners like you.
You can find out more about our podcast by visiting our website, 10timestheterror.com. That's 10xtheterror.com.